Take your Bibles, if you will, now. Thank you, Frank and team, Joseph, Kit, Eunice, so good to see you. Welcome home. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And again, this is a passage, a chapter, in fact, that I want to encourage you to read on your own. And if you would do so slowly and reflectively, we're not going to, uh, to look at every uh, detail of this passage, this chapter, uh, this morning for sake of time. But please read this passage even as you go into this week. And um, if you're tuning in to our video messages um, on demand through the week um, that are uh, reiterations again of this message on Sunday, um, you'll have that passage open for you as we continue being the people of God in the pandemic. And in particular, the groaning of creation, entering into the triune life and love of God. And we come now, as you open this before you, this, this chapter, or bring it up on your, your phone or your tablet, we come now to one of the most important passages in our whole quest through this series of reflections, our whole quest of understanding how, as followers of Jesus, we should approach this question of the coronavirus. We stand in awe before one of the greatest chapters in Paul's greatest letter, Romans chapter 8. And the letter to the Romans as a whole is, is, is in many ways the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. Um, the, uh, the, 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 there is so much freighted in this letter for us. But this great chapter, probably the greatest chapter in the letter, this chapter is full of faith, it's full of hope, it's full of love, and it begins with the great declaration that there is no condemnation for those in Messiah Jesus. Hallelujah. Explaining that God condemned sin in the death of Jesus and gave His people the Spirit as the guarantee of being raised from the dead. And then it ends with a great shout of praise in verses 37 to 39. In all these things, and I believe it's on the screen for us, in all these things we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor power, nor height, nor depths, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't light your fire, I don't know what will. You got wet wood or something. This passage describes a house that we all want to live in. And if we know anything about Christianity, we know that this, this victory over all the dark powers inside us and outside of us, security in the present age and the age to come, all because of the outpoured love of God in the death of Jesus. 
this is what it's all about. However, here's the rub. To get from the beginning of this amazing chapter to the end of this amazing chapter, you have to go through the middle. And in the middle, there is a strange portion which we often skip over. Except perhaps in times like these that we are currently living in when we are driven back to such passages by our circumstances. Paul has described how all Jesus' followers, having received the Spirit, are being led by that same Spirit to the inheritance, he says, which awaits us. Paul is here explicitly drawing on that central Jewish theme of Exodus and Passover, a theme that he draws upon so much in his writing. The children of Israel, you remember the story, liberated from Egypt, were led by God himself through the wilderness to their inheritance, the promised land, Canaan. And that wasn't an easy time for them. If you know the story at all, you know that that was not an easy time for them. And we don't find our pilgrimage easy as well, either, do we? We don't find days like these days to be easy days. We're coming into uh, a season we, we live, as you know, we live in a, in, a, in a living rainforest here on the West Coast, and we are coming into a season now where the rain begins again. And so what has been difficult now in many ways becomes even more difficult. Our isolation is felt even more, perhaps, by some more than others, depending on how each of us cope with this. But the, the, we, we are not finding our pilgrimage easy either. Paul puts it like this. The Spirit gives supporting witness to what our own spirit is saying. This is verse 17 of Romans 8. The Spirit gives supporting witness to what our own spirit is saying, that we are God's children. And if we're children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Messiah. Now watch this. As long as we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We like the glory part. We don't get too jazzed about the suffering part. But we can't have one without the other. Suffering, it would seem, is the inevitable path that we must tread. Even though, as Paul quickly adds, this suffering is small and trivial compared with the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. In verse 18. So for the sake of clarity once more, let me just say again, as I've said already in these reflections thus far, the inheritance that Paul's talking about here is not heaven, as many Christians have imagined. The glory has nothing to do with going to heaven and shining like angels someday. The inheritance is 
the whole renewed creation, the complete heaven and earth reality, renewed from top to bottom, as we read about in Revelation 21. With corruption, death, and decay abolished forever. Please understand, this is the final movement in a longer sequence. In the Old Testament, we see an extension of the inheritance from the land God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 to the whole world which God then promised to David in Psalm 2. Our ancestors, the early followers of Jesus, did not exchange this for an otherworldly heaven for which we would have to leave the earth behind someday. Instead, they saw it as being fulfilled by a new heaven coming down to a new earth at last. Notice that. Revelation, the Psalms, Isaiah, all unpack this for us. It's never been about us being evacuated and getting to heaven and shining like angels. It's about a new heaven coming down and meeting a new earth and all things being made new. Jesus in Revelation uh, 20, 21 talks about, Behold, I make all things new. So this is the understanding that our ancestors had. They saw it as being fulfilled in this way. So that is in some of the glorious biblical promises, the whole earth would be filled with the divine glory as the waters cover the sea. And he will have dominion from sea to sea. Of course, we cannot tell what our transformed physicality at that point will be like in God's new creation. Jesus' resurrected body had strange properties to it, if you recall, coming and going through closed locked doors, but also eating and drinking at the table. He could be touched and could touch others. Incredible. But his body didn't shine, though it had done earlier at the transfiguration. So who knows? We don't know what our, our glorified bodies and transformed physicality will look like. But that's not important. What is important is that the glory here, as in Psalm 8, where humans are crowned with glory and honor, is the long-awaited rule of redeemed human beings over God's creation. Paul says exactly that in Romans 5 and verse 17. And it meshes with the vocation of the redeemed in Revelation 5, verse 10, and elsewhere. So this is laced all through the Scriptures, particularly throughout the New Testament where our focus is in these days. But what will this rule, this, this, this glory and this rule look like? 
And here, in asking this question, we return to the theme of the way God wants to run His world. To our detriment, we still come to that question with medieval ideas of a monarch at the head of an army sweeping all before him, or perhaps with 18th century ideas of of machines which simply work the way the inventor intended. Either way, we often suppose that God's way of controlling the world is like one or the other, or a mixture of both. A majestic machine. So if something strange happens in the world, we assume that this must be what God intended, or at least what He chose to permit. We then try to draw inferences from this. If God allowed this to happen, it must be because He was trying to tell us something. And again, God can do whatever He wants to do. And if He chooses on special occasions to do so, or permit certain things for certain purposes, that is entirely His business and His prerogative, not ours. But even so, just because that possibility always remains open, we shouldn't use it as an excuse to to escape from the challenge, personally and theologically, of this passage, this chapter, Romans 8. At the heart of this chapter, listen to the words, and they're on the screen again for you. Paul says, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation." eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection in the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. In other words... God always wanted to rule the world through human beings. That has always been His intention, right from the garden. That is is part of what it means to be made in God's image. It was gloriously fulfilled in the human being, Jesus. Remember that. Jesus was and is a human being. Yeah, He's the Son of God. He's divine. He's fully God. We, 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 we know that, but we forget often that He is also fully human. And the way creation will at last become what it was always meant to be will be through the wise, rescuing, redemptive, Restorative rule of renewed, resurrected human beings. Guess who that's talking about? You and me. All those indwelt by the fullness of the Spirit are like Jesus to be image bearers. Verse 29 of Romans 8. Shaped according to the model of the image of His Son. As Paul puts it. 
So what does this mean for us in practice? Well, it means that when the world is going through great contractions and convulsions, similar to what we're experiencing even in these days, the followers of Jesus are called to labor with him by being people of prayer and life and love and compassion at the very place where the world is in pain. We are to be as his people like midwives of his purposes. Paul puts it like this in a three-stage movement. First, the groaning of the world. Second, the groaning of the church. Third, the groaning of the spirit within the church, within the world. This is the ultimate answer, I think, to those who want to say that the present coronavirus crisis is a clear message from God which we can at once decode either as a sign of the end, a call to repent, or simply an opportunity for a standard kind of in-your-face evangelism. But that's not what we're seeing here. Paul expresses it this way, verses 22 to 27, again on the screen for us. We know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together until the present time. Not only so, we too, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption and redemption of our body. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but the same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And the searcher of hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking because the Spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. Notice that Paul here says more or less the exact opposite of what some followers of Jesus are wanting to say at this time. Turn or burn. It's time to repent. We get our masked faces in the masked face of someone else and try to shove the gospel down their throat. That, that, that's not what it's about. Instead, it's about partnering with Jesus in the laboring of his purposes here in the world. Here is the world groaning in the pains of childbirth, as it were, Paul says. Yes, we recognize that picture. All right. There hasn't been a moment like this. I don't know about you, but there hasn't been a moment like this, what we're going through right now in my lifetime. And I think that would be the case for most of us. It is taking its toll, not only in many thousands of deaths, 
but in the stress and the distress of millions who are shut in without company or help. Those in our care homes. Those who are at the mercy of abusive partners or caregivers. Those who are losing jobs and livelihoods. Or simply those whose temperament in days like this in particular plunges them into gloom and depression after just a few days of being confined to the house. We understand all of that. So where should the people of God be in the middle of all of that? As we've seen, some are saying that the church should be commenting from the sidelines. It's all because you're sinners. It's because the end is near. We know what's going on and we need to tell you. However, that's not what Paul says to us here. Paul says that the followers of Jesus are caught up in the same groaning that is going on in all of creation, that is going on in the heart of the Holy Spirit. We are painfully aware of a big gap between the people we are right now, weak, frail, flawed, broken, muddled, corruptible, and the people we will yet be risen from the dead into a glorious, newly created, and immortal physicality. We feel that tension. We feel that gap between those two realities. And at the moment, this means that we share the groaning of creation. And this speaks directly to questions about what the church itself should be doing at the present time. The thing above all which the people of God should be doing at the present time, according to this chapter, is praying. But this is a strange prayer indeed. Here we are at the heart of one of the most glorious chapters in Scripture, and here is Paul saying, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We ought to be praying, but we don't know what to pray for. We're at a loss. He implies that this isn't something we should be ashamed of. It is the natural place to be. It is a kind of exile, just like the people of Israel in exile. It's a kind of fasting. It's, it's a moment of not knowing, not being in control. We don't like that feeling of not being in control. Not sharing what we might think of as glory at all. Yet that, St. Paul says, is the very moment when we are caught up in the inner triune life and love of God. That is exactly where we begin to partake with Christ in all that this meal represents that we shared together a few moments ago. Here is the dark mystery to which our present situation might alert us. The one thing we know from all this is that we don't know much. <laughs> How do you like those apples? The one thing we know for certain is that we don't know much. 
But not knowing, watch this, not knowing is itself the right place to be. Translate that up into fully Trinitarian life, and this is what you get. At the very moment when we discover that we ourselves are groaning, agonizing in these days, and we don't know what to say, or we don't know what to think, or we don't know what to do, we don't know what to make of this, at that same moment, Paul is saying, we find that God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, is groaning as well. Groaning without words. And there's a pattern taking shape here, if we'll see it. Those who have long pondered the story of Jesus will recognize this. We expect God to be, as we might say, in charge, taking control, sorting things out, getting things done. But the God we see in Jesus is the God who wept in lamentation at the tomb of His friend, as we've looked at. The God we see in Jesus is the God, the Spirit, who groans without words. The God we see in Jesus is the one who, to demonstrate what His kind of being in charge would look like, did the job of a slave and washed His disciples' feet. He said, this is what it looks like to be in charge. Peter, blustering as ever, knew that this was all wrong. Jesus should be the top dog, large and in charge. And he, Peter, would fight for him. And the church, beloved, we, the people of God, are always faced with the temptations of Peter to run the world the ordinary way, if necessary, by fighting, but then to collapse in a heap when trouble comes just like Peter. Instead, what we see of God, the Spirit, here in Romans 8, reminds us inescapably of what we see of the God, the Son, in John 13. And as that powerful hymn puts it, you may or may not know it, but it's a, it's a beautiful lyric. Great God, We strain to glimpse your mercy seat, and we find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings. To fill all worlds. To crown all things. So what are we saying? What are we saying of all of this? And in all of this, not only do we, the followers of Jesus, the people of God, not have any words to say and great pronouncements on what this all means to arrogantly trumpet out to the world, And incidentally, the world, of course, isn't waiting eagerly to hear us anyway. But we, the people of God in the pandemic, find ourselves caught up 
in the groaning of creation. And we discover that at the same time, God the Spirit is groaning within us. And that, that is our occupation and vocation. To be living a life of prayer, intercession. To be prayer. Our very lives would be prayer. Perhaps wordless prayer. Prayer in the Holy Spirit with heavenly language. Groaning prayer. Prayer at the point where the world is in pain. We must fully occupy and operate from this divine center. And at those very moments when we find ourselves weeping with grief, at the death of a friend or family member or at the impossibility of having a proper funeral or at the horror of millions of the world's poorest being at terrible risk or simply because being locked down is inherently depressing. At those moments when any words we try to say come out as sobs or tears, we have to remind ourselves that this is how God the Spirit is present at the heart of the agony of creation through us. Yes, just like Jesus himself being hailed as King of the Jews when he shared the agony of Israel and, 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 and the world on the cross, what, what an ironic picture of paradox hanging on the cross with the king of the Jews nailed above his head. Certainly not the picture of a king that we would have in mind. This redefinition of control, this redefinition of kingship, this redefinition of being in charge, of authority, of kingdom, of sovereignty, which we find also in the rest of the New Testament and particularly with Jesus himself, here reaches its true depth. This is what the work of living the gospel, this is what our vocation as the people of God, being the people of God in this pandemic, is to actually look like in the current conditions we face here in our North American culture. 